About 1,000 people in the Ketu South municipality of the Volta region have been displaced after tidal waves submerged their homes on Saturday, May 29. Residents say the invasion and assaults by the sea buried more than 20 homes. I think I came as an assemblyman to meet this uh, water crisis in Chanshaw community uh, since uh, 2015. The policy is that we do not permit mining in forest reserves. Wherever you have an extractive industry in the world, you will have problems with illegality everywhere in the world. Ghana is not an exception. Hello and welcome to Our Culture, a podcast about media, culture and politics. My name is Niko Tainikwe. Today, Sefako Agbesi joins us to discuss the impending climate crisis and its impact on Ghana. Sefako has an MSc in economics with a focus on energy, natural resources, and the environment. She has worked in the capacities of climate financing and project management in the renewable energy field since 2015 with a focus on multiple countries. We discussed the government's response to the urgent calls for mitigation and adaptation. We also briefly examined the media coverage of the climate crisis. Welcome. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Sefa Kwa. Could you briefly introduce yourself and just tell us how you got into this field? Um, so I am Ghanaian. I grew up in a village in Volta region. Um, my grandparents and my dad are avid farmers. And I kind of uh, drifted into, I was always interested in seeing things grow. And as I got older, I got into the University of Ghana to study business administration. And during that time, I um, started thinking about the um, kind of the union of economics and the environment. Because while I was concerned about the environment, I also understood that we need, we need people need to eat. And they need to eat, they need to grow their crops, they, they need to rear their livestock. And if people don't have enough sustenance, they would they would not really think very carefully about the environment and it's fair because your basic needs have to be met. So I started thinking about the potential uh, options for me to study a bit deeper into that um, and to eventually work in that in that field. So then my in my for my masters I looked out for programs like that and that's kind of how I got into the field. Right. So it's it's born out of kind of your direct experience of um, living close to the land, as it were, right, and then um, watching your know, family members and community engaged in in farming, and then thinking about the potential impact of um, the catastrophe that is upon us. <laughs> um, yeah, that we we euphemistically call climate change. And so this brings me to my one of the most important questions. Uh, I feel like um, the country hasn't really wrestled with, uh, in my opinion. Uh, which is the IPCC, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that was released about two years, three years ago in 2018, where they predicted that we essentially have 12 years to try and keep um, temperatures at a particular level. I believe it's 1.5 Celsius. And if we go any mm -hmm. higher, it would have drastic and devastating consequences. And what's surprising is that um, just today, I realized that a report was a sort of a draft report of the IPCC was also made available again. And this time, 
they seem to be painting painting sorry they seem to be painting a, a, a much more starker reality of what's about to happen in terms of the hundreds of millions of people who will be severely impacted by the climate crisis and i and i wonder uh, what does that this what does this mean for ghana uh, how should people really take this news uh, how should they start prepping their minds or sort of demanding some form of accountability how should ghanaians take this news so um i mean despite what it may seem like there are several agencies in ghana who i believe are aware um, and have been informed about the potential uh, catastrophe that's coming because Ghana as a member of the um, of the UNFCC is required to submit a report every four years basically updating the um, the organization on what is happening what is foreseen the actions that they are taking to combat it the um, real life implications of the IPCC's um, report is and this is also based on reports prepared by Ghana itself, the Ghanaian authorities, kind of signed off by the the ministry, the Ministry of um, Environment. It basically says that Ghana expects, if on average the whole world temperature is going to increase by 1.5 degrees Celsius, Ghana is expecting at least three degrees. And the IPCC itself expects uh, West Africa and Southern Africa to have higher increases than average. So the Ghanaian paper is saying three degrees, IPCC expects it to be more than the average. So if it's 1.5, we have the factor of two. And what that means is basically the areas which are prone to drought are going to get drier. The northern part of the country is expected to have temperatures above 30 degrees going uh, once that happens. Um, areas prone to flooding are going to have higher flood risk. The, the paper written uh, and signed off by the Ghanaian ministry itself says that 10% of the country's land area is prone to flood hazards. And, um, um, and then the Upper West is identified to be the area to be most affected with the, there's a specific district which has also been, been written down as the, the one which is most likely to be affected in Ghana. And they also expect lots of migration because of this. So migration from the northern parts of the country to the southern part. However, parts of the southern parts are the ones going to have the flood risk. So if 10% of the landmass is not going to be usable anymore due to flooding, the northern side is drought. People cannot grow crops, which means there's going to be hunger. Um, the implications are quite stark. Um, and when you look at the, the sources of the emissions, the highest source of emission is from uh, land, land use. And this includes forestry, it includes agriculture, it includes livestock. Um, and Sorry to interrupt you. When you say emissions, could you kind of explain what you mean by the highest source of emissions? So basically, um, each, each activity that we do contributes to a certain level of emissions. When I say emissions, I'm referring to the gases that are released. The whole concept of climate change um, is, is built upon the basis that human beings, ever since the industrial age, we have been engaging in activities that release more than optimal levels of carbon dioxide or methane into the atmosphere. And these gases, since they are released at a much faster rate than they can be dis dispersed, kind of stay in the atmosphere and trap heat, which 
is increasing the, um, the temperature of the earth. And each country has um, a volume of emissions that it's released. And it is understood that the um, more the Western countries are the ones mostly responsible for these emissions, and they continue to be. However, emissions are kind of a public good or public bad in this in this case, because if your neighbor is putting carbon dioxide into the air, you are also going to feel the impact because you can't you can't prepare against that. So then the, uh, the Paris Climate Accord is meant to have all countries united in reducing their emissions um, to make sure that these effects are not felt. However, even if right now where we are, even if um, the emissions are reduced, some impacts have already started. Areas have, uh, count, several countries are already dealing with drought. And the, it's kind of like a chain reaction for the environment. So if it's too hot, then there's drought, there's migration, there's going to be there's a breakdown of law and order, there's increased xenophobia because people are uh, food insecure. Um, and then you have health things whereby viruses which were pre uh, previously dormant kind of get warmer. So it's, it's kind of a nightmare scenario if you look at it. And when you see the Paris Climate Accord, for example, it looks good on paper, but in actual fact, it's the, the bare minimum at this stage. And it's not, it's not just the Ghanaian uh, government, which I think are not taking this seriously enough. It's the whole, it's a global thing because it's not, um, the urgency has not yet sunk in, but it is, it is coming. It seems like whilst we are feeling the impact, I mean, you could literally feel that temperatures in Ghana have gone up. I can literally remember, um, like when I when I <laughs> when I'm at home and it's around four or five, and I touch the walls in the house, I I the walls are literally so hot, <laughs> right? And I can remember ten, fifteen years ago, it never used to be like that. And it's strange to me how there isn't any kind of public discussion about what's really happening and its potential impact on, let's say, how we build houses now. Right. Or, you know, or even our energy consumption. Right. Because now probably people are building more houses and installing more air conditionings because it's becoming hotter and hotter in Ghana. And what does what is the impact of that on our energy needs? Right. And how are we planning and building and even, you know, activities like school children being paraded. Right. In, in, like at Independence Day. Like how are these? It seems to me that climate, the climate crisis is never really connected to other things that are happening that seemed to me very much related to the crisis in the first place I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that I think um, so when you sit down with it and think through it it's it's big and it's it feels overwhelming and it's not a one solution issue because you have to tackle it from all angles that's why they have adaptation and mitigation adaptation basically means to plan for a way to to live despite increases in climate change. And mitigation is to reduce your contribution to the climate change. And both of these have to go hand in hand. So basically, you in for adaptation, you plan your houses, taking into account the rise in temperatures, ventilation needs. At the same instance, you also plan it so that you don't use uh, air conditioners which would release even more gases into into the environment, thereby increasing the temperature. You you have more renewable energy used, 
so that you don't have more um, coal plants which pollute the environment. Um, and also, um, and then you, you, you make sure that your, your flat phone areas, you have structures, ways of preventing that, or you, you raise land um, levels if you have to. Um, you have to, it's, you, we have to rethink the way we do everything, basically. You have to think deeply about whether you need to take a car somewhere if you cannot walk, whether instead you should do biking. So then the road transportation networks have to be built so that to allow for bike lanes. You have to like um, maybe uh, rule out generators. And in order to do that, you have to make sure that your utilities can provide the power needs uh, for the citizens. If you're looking at the hydropower, you have to take into consideration the fact that the water might dry up. So how are you going to do that? Are you going to have... Um, either a, a solar to give it a hybrid so that you can save up as much water as you can. And all of that, it's, you have to tackle it from so many different angles that it requires very strong political commitment. And you have to do all of this while satisfying the, the economic needs of your citizens. So I think even the most committed leader, would it's a full-time thing would struggle and then not to talk about leaders who would uh, prefer not to think about this at all because it's overwhelming and I mean I keep I keep telling people that you know what when I'm I feel overwhelmed by this I just comfort myself with the fact that I'm gonna be dead before the West the West effect is felt <laughs> but there's but there's hope <laughs> yeah um, I, I think the kids are doing good the young people are kind of because it's their future at stake here they are the ones who have to live with it. We are already seeing migration across all over the world. Some of the migrations are not just because of insecurity, or it's also because people can't earn a livelihood from the land. So, and human beings, we migrate. We have always been my, my, migrating people. So you go where you think the, the life would be a bit easier. So people are already moving. And you have the Western countries uh, policing their borders even harder because they see what's coming. So assuming the, the planet, the scenarios pan out and the whole temperatures rise, what's going to happen to the coldest parts of the, of the world are going to get warm and they are going to be even tropical and they are going to have, still have good uh, agriculture. So there's going to be food there. There's going to be water there. So it just continues the whole um, world order. And they want to make sure that people don't come from the more, more affected places so they can keep enjoying what they have. Which then brings me to um, the government response. So I did a little news dive um, just trying to figure out what, what sort of things have been happening around climate change. And I saw a lot of seminars, workshops, and things like that on climate change and a lot of sort of propaganda around plans. So all these plans mm -hmm. are in place. And I guess one of the striking ones, most recent and most visible was the tree planting exercise. But for me, it seemed like it was a lot of propaganda because it was kind of couched as sort of this is what is going to address climate change or the environmental impact. And I wondered and I was like, ah, 
but you are just planting coconut trees. I saw a lot of coconut trees, and I was just wondering, okay, how much carbon do coconut trees really trap? I don't know, right? But I was just thinking aloud, and I was like, why aren't we asking much deeper questions about sort of what are actually being implemented in terms of addressing um, the climate crisis? So I wanted to hear your thoughts on the government action so far and what you've observed um, as well. So on paper, the government is quite committed. So um, part of its uh, planned activities to address climate change include to uh, improve public transportation, have at least uh, 10% of Ghana's energy needs uh, covered by uh, renewable um, energies, excluding hydropower. So that's wind and solar, 10%. Um, reduce the depend, uh, dependence on wood, on biomass for, for, um, for cooking. Um, also uh, improve forest. So yeah, increase forest cover. So when we look at it on paper, it's, it's wonderful. Like I, I, love, I love reading about Ghanaian uh, policies and plants and everything. So the tree planting in itself, I think is good. It's great, but it's not, not going to be the solution. Um, I think, so for, for trees to kind of um, absorb carbon, they need to go to a certain age. I'm not like uh, an agroforestry person, but a, an old tree, a mature tree can get in more carbon than a young tree. So if, we, if the government is really committed to um, using trees as carbon capture, the first step is to protect existing forests. That's the, bare, the basic minimum. So you do that, so you, you protect your forest reserves. You, um, you don't give them out for mining. Um, you don't get it, uh, um, you, you make sure that you incentivize people to leave those forests alone and to protect them, which means you need to create some alternative livelihood for people who depend on the forest. And then um, the next step, you think about your transportation network. Um, you restructure your roads, you encourage cycling, which also requires you to have security that people feel safe to cycle between towns in Ghana. Um, then you encourage renewables. I'm a member of the renewable energy space, so maybe just to maybe I am a bit biased when I talk about renewables. Um, but like you, if um, you want, you don't want coal. Gas is one of the least uh, polluting fa um, uh, types of energy among the fossil fuel family. So you can have gas as a balancing act for the uh, renewables because most renewable projects like solar, solar only gives electricity during the day. You can have storage facilities. Storage battery means it's slightly more expensive, but that is possible. You have more of those projects. Um, you can look into wind. You have that, and that would reduce the emissions produced um, through um, energy consumption. Like land use is the highest emission, emitting factor in Ghana. So then you protect your forest. You, you talk to farmers. Growing up, there were seasons that we would set fires to land, to clear the land so that we would plant things. So you have to go and educate these people that this is not really good for the land. And you have to give them alternatives. If they need more um, training, you, you have, you have, you have, you, I don't know if they still have them, but they used to have forestry agricultural officers who studied these things. And you, you teach people, you communicate from village to village. And you, you ask them, okay, what do you need to make this happen? 
you look into ways of growing cocoa without depleting. So um, I'm saying that some of the crops that are, are being grown, some of them are compatible with the with the climate change goals for the environment. Uh, for example, cocoa cocoa uh, needs cover, forestry cover when it's being grown. So that means fewer trees being felled. You find ways of optimizing that. You look at other like so it. It's a lot of investment. I think Ghana already has most of the knowledge. It's just the um, the willingness to implement those things that's lacking. Right. I mean, one of the, my frustrations was um, hearing a celebration that we had found oil, um, and then there was absolutely no discussion of the climate crisis and you know the further kind of extraction of oil and then its environmental impact. And then the, the fact that it, it, it would mean more emissions as well. And then even worse was this penchant to now shift a lot of energy sort of discussions to thermal. And I was like, no discussion once again of the climate crisis. So I wonder what your thoughts are on sort of like where the government is sort of thinking about energy production and the sort of way it's communicating and talking about it. And, and maybe perhaps what I see as a kind of deep consideration of the climate crisis. Because when I hear them talk, it's never really an integral part of how they're thinking, at least when they communicate to the public. You know, like you said, it's beautiful in the policy documents, but it never gets interconnected to other discussions when, when there are kind of public discussions going on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's considered in the, in the guiding policies of the government. Not just this government, but all of the governments. I don't think this is something that's raised in parliament, in cabinet, when they are talking about projects, when they are sourcing energy. And on the one hand, of course, the general argument is that um, developing countries are not responsible for the uh, volume of emissions. And that is true. And that is fair. However, we are going to bear the brunt of the impact. So then we have to protect ourselves and figure out a way to restructure our economy. And discovery of oil, well, I am not in the oil industry for my own reasons. It, it would be, so there are countries that say they are green, but then they don't count their oil exports. So it's, it's not... It's not particularly unique. I, I, I feel like I'm kind of making you a bit disillusioned here. But I mean, it's so you need to extract the oil. Okay, what's the most uh, environmentally friendly way you can extract it? Because I mean, if, if oil is the only source of income you're going to have, I don't think it is. It's just that the other alternatives take more more time and more work than the government is willing to to do and there isn't i mean it's like i said you can have gas gas power plants they are they emit but not as much as the others and they are a wonderful uh, they react quickly you can uh, the step uh, step up step down time is quite short so you can just use it to transition between um, our renewables you can have more small hydro dams run off the river which would um, powers to villages. So it doesn't have to be all interconnected. You can have several different microgrids, but it takes uh, political uh, willingness and muscle. And it has to 
not just the central government, even locally, the districts, because this run of the river, river projects, it has to be something that the local community understands and buys into. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really don't have a lot of faith in uh, <laughs> in our political class. It seems like uh, the issues that, the existential issues that are upon us or, you know, about to hit us or even hitting us now don't seem to register a lot of urgency. I, I feel like even, you know, I, I have been following closely the sort of like even the COVID-19 and the sort of way science is selectively used to obscure and always kind of paint this particular picture of what the government is doing versus what is actually happening. So I'm curious to see whether maybe they'll sit up at some point in time, which is why I find um, perhaps uh, what citizens should do, because I believe really that citizens can press upon the state, right, to ensure that they are protected, right, to some extent, because the crisis will come. But in terms of protection against um, coastal uh, degradation, uh, increasing heat, etc., there are things that the state can put in place, for example. Which brings me to um, one of the fundamental questions. I think you've brought it up already that, you know, our temperatures might be increasing by three degrees, right? Which essentially would mean a death sentence, right, for certain parts of West Africa. I recall watching an excerpt, I think the African delegation at one of the cops got upset and protested when a particular temperature was agreed upon because the African delegation said, this is a death sentence for us. If you agree on this particular number, for us, it means this. Uh, And so it seems like, and as you've pointed out, that some countries would not be hit as hard or as extreme as others. And then there's a particular sort of arrangement in place now where some countries and some people are going to be disposable, right? And some people have called this the climate apartheid, right? A particular number is agreed upon, and that particular number means death for some parts of the world and life for others. Uh, I wonder whether you could speak to that as well. So if we take, for example, Ghana, so they have said that the Upper West is is the the region most at risk, uh, which, which would take the, the the brunt of the of the climate change, and then the um, I will just a second. Why uh, East? Why East is the most vulnerable district to climate change in the whole country. So what that means, and that area is already prone to drought, which means that people are gonna go hungry. So those who can't move will die. Um, the vulnerable. Well, so you have to look at, okay, how many people live in that particular district? Assuming that like the rest of Ghana is moderately fine or is just mildly affected. If we take that district alone, how many people live there? So that's like automatically they they are gone. You look at the flood prone parts of the country, 10% of Ghana's land. You calculate how many people live there. If those floods come, that's it. They They are gone. And then you look at, okay, how many people are going to be affected even after when they move? How is the move going to be done? How many are we going to lose in that process? Then the aftermath of the survival, what happens then? What if the place they move to doesn't have enough food? So how many are going to starve? And then there's also an issue of water. Drought means less water. And so right now we actually have to protect our water bodies. We should not be doing anything that pollutes the water bodies. Um, we could actively, the tree planting, it could be done in the north right now. It could be a full-on activity. You plant those trees, you pay people to water them, you keep planting. 
and you just every day so people's job is to just go and plant wherever you live you plant your trees where there is a, a bare ground you plant the trees and all of this it wouldn't prevent the temperatures from rising but it would make it a bit easier to to adapt and the way the world is structured the so you have countries like which lay are low lying like bangladesh it has 166 million people it's already mostly a delta which means most of the country gets uh, flooded at some point. So you have climate change, you have rising water levels, and it's going to wipe out a huge proportion. And then you have the island nations who would be totally eliminated. So for them, those who are not able to get onto boats are done for. Then there's the boat trips. We already have the Mediterranean. You have the, like the North Africa already dry and prone to dryness. Then you have the Middle East. So it's I think it's going to, just like COVID, it's going to um, go the same way. It's just further, more, a more explicit showing of the current world order and the current world value placed upon our lives based on where you come from. It's just going to be raised by a factor of maybe two to 10 or so. So then we you see it. So, I mean, the climate appetite, I think it's already started and it's ongoing. And it's going to get uh, get worse. And in order for, I mean, we are not helpless. Even if the government refuses to act, what citizens can do right now, like I said, you start planting, you, you, you plant the trees. You don't need um, the government to tell you that. You you have your house. Instead of having paved, paved uh, cement floors um, on your compound, you plant trees instead. You build your house using materials that can um, uh, lower heat. You don't, you, you, you select uh, things that are sustainable. You, you walk to places when you can. You use a bicycle um, if possible. You, if you're traveling, you don't, you try to, to give as many people lifts as possible to reduce your um, imp uh, impact. You make, you, you campaign against mining activities being done in your area. And if they must happen, you make sure that you sit in on the meetings where they discuss the environmental and social impact and you listen to the companies that describe to you exactly how they are going to mitigate those impacts and you hold them accountable to that and you make sure that a certain percentage of the revenues from those activities go directly into, into your, your society. They go into your hospitals, they go into your schools, they go into your roads. You do that for the, the sea defense. I mean, that you, you do as much as you can on a decentralized basis too. Because growing up, we used to, people in my village used to take turns touching each other's roofs. So if this weekend they are working on this person's roof, next weekend is another person. So you all do that, commu community labor. If you can ferry some stones to try and block you, you block that and you, you continue forcing the government. You ask them questions. Every decision they announce, you ask them, what are the implications of this? Have you thought this through? What is your plan for this? And you just, you have to put their feet to the fire because in the end, they have money. They most, most, a lot of them, if they don't have second passports, they are able to secure those and they would leave. And we know they are, they always have dual citizenship somewhere hiding somewhere <laughs> with houses. Other. And so, and so it brings the question of class even in this discussion about who has the mobility. Um, to, to run away from the effects of climate change when they happen. So it seems to me it's really interesting that you bring this conversation to even a national level where we see that a sort of climate apartheid also happening na um, nationally. 
where the southern parts of Ghana, maybe some parts may not be affected as much as some northern parts, like you mentioned, Upper East, the potential for the sort of impact from a drought, and then what will happen in the process of migration and so on. And so even nationally, there seems to be some kind of apartheid system also going on where it's like some people would deal with this <laughs> horrible thing in a in a way that we will survive. So it's not really our number one priority. And then we don't amplify the, the urgency of the situation. Which then brings me to how you think the media is faring when it comes to... Because I'm a media sort of person, I'm really interested in what your thoughts on just observing this particular question and the sense of urgency around this issue and the way it's covered by the media. What are your thoughts on and what you've seen so far? I think there is a lot of room for improvement in how the media covers it. Um, I'm willing to, to believe that it's because the urgency is not fully understood. Uh, that's something I've chosen to, to believe in this case. I like to give the benefit of a doubt. So, um, but I think that the media should be doing more. It should be having people on the various language uh, stations in Ghana and the various TV stations, different languages, talking about this, talking about the potential uh, mitigation actions that communities can take, asking questions of those in power, and talking, asking the DCEs, the MPs, the president, the ministers. Every single decision, there has to be a climate angle to that, that the government communicates has to have a climate angle. If they announce that we are going to build one factory, one district, you have to ask them, Okay, that's that's wonderful for getting employment. What exactly are you going to produce in those factories? How are you going to um, energize those factories? What sources of power are, are you going to use for that? How much emissions are you going to produce for that? Or have you considered putting solar panels on the roofs of those factories? Uh, like, what kind of concrete are you going to use for that? Have you designed the factories with the understanding that there is going to be probably increased uh, temperatures going forward. So those are the kind of questions you should have. You should have the, the media bringing on agriculture, agri agricultural aspects, talking about climate-resistant crops, like drought-resistant crops for areas which would be most affected. Maybe you have people having community meetings in the north, moving from village to village, or they can take start from the west uh, affected the expected the district that is expected to be most affected in Ghana. You can start from that, talking to them, explaining things to them, and saying, "Okay, this is what you can do right now. These are the types of crops that survive, that do well. So start growing those kind of crops now. And this is how we are going to support you. Here are the seeds; they are free from the government. This is what you need to do. Things like that. That's something like the media should be pushing, and it should be something that is done so that the average citizen has it at the back of their mind so that we always you think twice before before you do i know that climate change the most emitters are not individuals just to be to be clear it's mostly it's corporate the military industrial complex it's multinational companies it's uh, it's mining it's it's you and i we can reduce our in, uh, footprint but the most emitters are not us however we can take actions to make our lives a bit easier despite the impending uh, increased temperature and the, to minimize the effects because people still have to eat. So then the drought-resistant crops have to 
start being planted now so people can gain the experience. And the government has to be pushed. You have to keep pushing them. Right. And I, and I think what I hear forcefully coming out from our conversation really is there's a way to mobilize public opinion to push these questions. And it's possible for the media to kind of facilitate that process. But it seems like the media also has to be pushed <laughs> to ask these tough questions. It seems like every big discussion is only about economics in a very narrow sense where the environment suddenly is not a big part of economic processes. It's always weird to me how the environment is erased <laughs> from mm-hmm. the economy without the environment nothing sustains right there's no economy without the environment so you know this brings me to my final um, sort of question for you is uh, do you have any sort of last points you want to make that we kind of haven't addressed um, or any final thoughts that you want to share i think the only way we can be somewhat prepared is if citizens push all the people in power from every angle um, I know, for example, the Atewa forest activists, they've done a fantastic job. It's a shame that that hasn't, um, that, that hasn't seemed to have helped much, but they've done, they are fighting groups like that. And not, we don't just form those groups when the thing is about to happen. We form those groups right now. We can, we go, we, everybody goes home to their home village and tells them about this impending disaster, shows them what's going to happen and start asking the questions. And if you can afford to get some drought-resistant seeds for your, for your farming family, you take it to them. You, you, you ask them to plant it. You see how it goes. You see if they like it. And you start those things. You, you make sure your voice is heard in family discussions. When it's time for voting, when the politicians come, you ask them these questions. So I think that's the only way to, to do this because I don't see a lot of political will internationally to combat this um, or nationally. Right. As a somber note to to end our discussion, but I, I believe in the will of the people. Uh, and so I, I, I know people rise up and, and push push our, our leaders to do better and push themselves to also do better. Thank you so much for gracing us uh, with your with your knowledge and your patience and your kindness to engage me in this discussion. And, and I hope to invite you further. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I hope I did not depress you too much. No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> not at yeah. all. Aluta continua. Never, never. <laughs> okay. That's good. <laughs> Music by Ayande. <laughs>